Uh, what we're talking about here is a completely auto autonomous fire detection and suppression system. It does a few things. First, it's detection and location. In this case, it's automatically detecting a fire with optical detection and tracking its location in three dimensions. Second, we're then looking to aim and suppress. So once you've detected a fire and activated the system, now we're trying to direct water spray at the fire. And then once the fire has been addressed, we want to conserve the water supply, hopefully keep it available to fight a fire in the future, so to have it remote reset and go back to sleep. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne, and this week we're talking about new technologies that could make tall buildings safer in the event of a fire. This is our fourth and final podcast in our fire safety mini-series, where we have explored the systemic changes required in the UK. We've discussed incentives for making buildings safer, including the potential for a fire and life safety rating system and we've explored a unique new solution for evacuation being pioneered at 22 Bishopsgate in London. In this episode, we're considering developments in technology, including detection systems, exterior fire protection, sprinkler systems, and new digital technologies that are improving efficiency in terms of emergency response and giving new information to building users. As we saw at Grenville Tower in 2017, a lack of information about a building in the event of a fire can be dangerous. In the subsequent report by Dame Judith Hackett, which was fully accepted by the government, it was recommended that a digital record of all building work is established and held by the duty holder of all high-risk residential buildings. The Hackett report states that a golden thread of good quality information will also enable future building owners to better manage buildings safely. As soon as detailed work commences, clients need to ensure that a digital record of the building work is established and a fire and emergency file initiated. Both of these will need to be maintained throughout design and construction and be part of the new improved regulatory oversight process. Formal handover will help enable occupation to commence and this should focus activity throughout the process ensuring this thread of information is passed along to future building owners, thereby underpinning more effective safety management throughout a building life cycle, making sure critical information is not lost. Someone who's aware of the danger of a lack of information is Curtis Massey, the president and CEO of life safety consulting firm Massey Emergency Management. In response to the need for more and better information about buildings in the event of emergency, Curtis has developed an app which can direct all stakeholders from building owners and emergency services to tenants and visitors on how to respond in an emergency. The interactive app walks users through the appropriate response for any disaster from a fire to a terrorist attack and it's populated with advice from world-leading experts in emergency management. It can also be used by app users to communicate with one another and share vital information in the event of a disaster. Delegates at the Firex International Tall Building Safety Networks Conference this summer told me this was a new and exciting technology that could help emergency services in the UK. So I tracked Curtis down and asked him to show me his app. 
This is a highly advanced mobile app that tells the end user, and if it's a high-rise office building or residential or hotel or mixed-use property, we tell the building staff, security, engineering, and management how to handle virtually any emergency you can think of, how to prepare, react, and recover from terror, weather, fire, flood, medical, virtually anything you can think of. We uh, explain to the building staff in very brief bullet points how to react to the emergency and, and how to deal with it prior to the arrival of first responders. Okay, so let's see. So you're showing me on a tablet here. I can see the screen's cut into four. Give me an emergency, anything you can think okay, of. Okay, well, let's talk about a fire. That's okay. very irrelevant. And we're in, a, we're in a building, a tall building. And we have a large office fire on an upper floor then it's immediately, you go there, you do this, you do that, and just brief one-sentence bullet points as if you have a fire chief on your shoulder. So the app gives you the option to choose the type of emergency. Correct. And the, the, does it give you the option for the location of the emergency? Yes. So uh, if you have an emergency on the 23rd floor, you come down here, touch the 23rd floor, and wow. you instantly have a schematic of it. And how the floor is laid out, the core penetrations, your sprinkler and standpipe uh, valve locations, your lifts, we call elevators in the U.S., yeah. and uh, all your vertical penetrations, including your utilities, and what direction you're facing and what street you're facing for firefighter orientation. So when they come out of the core, they know what direction and street they're facing for search and rescue activities. Now, for many existing buildings in the U.K., this is the kind of information that emergency services can currently only take from old, as-built construction drawings. And even for engineers, these are not the easiest things to read, especially not at speed and under immense pressure. They may also be incorrect. Buildings change, and this lack of recording of change is another weakness identified by Dame Judith about our current system. As digital technology becomes more prevalent in construction, the use of digital twins and building information modelling will go a long way towards bridging the information gap. But until it does, we still have a big problem. One of the huge benefits of Curtis's app is that in building it, his team map out the building and its essential services and main features in order to create a useful model with user-friendly plans and diagrams. So when you go back to the event, and we have, let's just say, a kitchen exhaust duck fire in this large office building. So when the fire department gets there, they want to immediately know what floors that have the kitchen hoods on them. So when you touch that, you can see it's a 52-story building, but there's only four floors that have kitchens. So we say lobby two, four, and floor 37. So now the fire department knows where they're at. And then you only give the fire chief the four floors that have the kitchens on them. So don't give the fire chief 200 floor plans or 52 floor plans. Just give them the seven. And so you can see here in two seconds, the chief knows here's the two commercial kitchen hood systems in the 37th floor on the south side of the building facing 42nd Street. And then the chief is going to say, where does the exhaust go to? And you go back in the article and you touch a hyperlink for ventilation riser diagram. And so you can see here the ventilation shaft goes from 37 up and out 50. So now the chief knows where it terminates. So that's the key thing because they're going to have to chase that fire down if it gets in the ductwork. And then, so, so without this information previously, was it just get there and see and have yeah, to work it Yeah, it was total out? guesswork. Yeah. Right, so this, this is a digital representation of all of the main functions of the building, all yeah. the infrastructure or whatever it is that the emergency service are responding to. Exactly. So can you do this for anything? It doesn't have to just be buildings, I assume. You could do it for a, a subway or 
Yes, for subways and train stations and airports and hospitals and nursing homes and uh, total building infrastructure for a city. Now there's a large city in the U.S. that's interested in having us do the app for 1,200 schools in that city. And it's the, it's the largest uh, school organization in the United States. And uh, it's after all the mass shootings we've had in schools recently. So if you have a mass shooting and you have the handle emergency events, and all your active threats are right here. Could be bombing, could be uh, biological attack, uh, bomb threat. So if you have an active shooter inside or outside the building, you've got a SWAT commander on your shoulder guiding you through what to do in the immediate so moment. this would be a teacher, for example. Exactly. Would use this app. Yeah, a teacher or a staff administrator or even a maintenance worker inside the school. And then the key thing is you also have emergency messaging capability. So if the police department comes to the, uh, the school and they set up their command post, it's typically not going to be right in front of the building. It's going to be two, three blocks away in a safe zone. So they can send an emergency message to the building remotely using the app. So we have a text, armed intruder locked down immediately, and you touch that, you've already got a pre-entered message. You choose your roles, manager, engineer, security, or fire wardens. I would choose all roles, and then you send that out. Wow. So... so you, you explained that you've been working on this for three years. It seems to cover all possible emergencies. What is the potential for the users themselves, the, the pupils in the school or the occupiers of a building? Would they look at an app like this, or is this just for the people managing? And it was for the fire department and the police department in terms of building intelligence. So they have all the floor plans, they have the riser diagrams, they have yeah. the the PDFs of the schematics of the floors, yeah. but all the what do I do articles is for the civilians. So right. th this isn't for the fire department or police department. They already know how to deal with emergencies. Okay. So all of that, any any of these situations, it tells somebody, so myself, if I was in a building that was on fire, I could go to my app and I could say, my building's on fire, and it will tell me what to do. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. And it has to work on or offline. So if you lose connectivity, and you likely will in a major disaster... Even if it's not a weather-related event where the cell towers are compromised in a large event, there's going to be so many people hitting the Internet, it's going to yeah. crash the servers, and you're going to lose Internet connectivity in either. Right now I'm offline, so I'm not even connected to the Internet. Everything works except for emergency so, messages. Who, who did you work with on this, and how can people find out more about it? Uh, I compiled a team of experts from the top SWAT commander in the L.A. City Police Department, the top fire chiefs from New York to Houston to L.A. to many uh, Philadelphia uh, to Chicago. We got a lot of chiefs together, and we put together the information, Navy SEAL Team 6, Special Operations Commando, uh, paramedics, uh, physicians assistant, nurses, and we got a team together to write the expert written content. And how long did that take from a software development perspective? Was that complicated? Yes, it was. It took us three years to build it and $1.2 million. Wow. And there must have been some interesting lessons that came out along the way. Yeah, it, it was a very formidable task because nothing like this had ever been built before. And what brought it to the forefront is the ability to share it for the first responders. So just about every major city in the United States, fire department, police department, or both uses our app now. So that is the go-to app for well, America's first. In such a short space of time. So yeah. when was it ready? When was it? Uh, it took a, we finished it about four years ago. Okay, so over four years, it's spread to every emergency department pretty much. Yeah, overnight, really. The app's been available for four years now, but it's continually updated and the latest feature enables users to draw over diagrams to provide updates and critical information in the event of an emergency. 
this is the brand new feature we're putting in the app that allows people to, and mostly first responders, but also the building staff and how to integrate to playing with the app in terms of painting the scene. So you can literally draw on the app and, and uh, you can take a pen, and circle certain stairwells, say, okay, that's going to be the search and rescue stairwell, and that's going to be the attack stairwell. And then you can come down here and marshal your forces, and you can say, okay, engine 14 is going to attack the fire, and uh, the fire is on the south side of the building, and on the north side of the building, we've cleared the floor of victims, and now you can start painting the scene and so sharing if, it with first responders. I was going to say, so if you make these edits to the floor plan, mm -hmm. that then becomes the new version that exactly. somebody somewhere else will yeah. see. Because up till now, everything is done by voice communication. So I'm in the lobby of the building, and you're up on the 23rd floor, and we're talking to each other, trying to paint a mental picture of what you're seeing and what you're experiencing. Now you can literally draw on the graphic and send it to that commander yeah. up on the 23rd floor, and he can see exactly what's going on or vice versa back to the lobby. So you can continually update people on what's happening with the building, where's safe, where's not. Yeah, inf information has to flow swiftly in an emergency because uh, intel is power, and, and the more power you have, the more likely you're going to make the right decisions early on in the emergency, which is when most of the critical decisions are being made is in those first three to four minutes. A phrase that Curtis used a lot and that really stuck with me was, it's like having a fire chief on your shoulder. But is it really? I needed to ask a fire chief, preferably one who'd use Curtis's app on a tall building. And then I find Bobby Wilson, a former captain of the New York City Fire Department, a professional who'd responded to both World Trade Center terrorist attacks, and now a director of fire and life safety on one of New York's newest tall buildings, 10 Hudson Yards. The 273 meter tall tower is part of a 1.7 million square meter real estate development that includes five other tall buildings. When we first moved into 10 Hudson Yards, it was, um, you know, we gave, we gave access of the app to um, engineering staff, to security staff, to building management. And again, even though the, the, the app was designed as a, uh, an incident command tool, it became a useful tool initially in navigating through the building. So you could bring up a floor and see what was on that particular floor um, from an engineering perspective, especially the common spaces. Um, you know, like, you know, you don't need to know, um, you know, how the stairwells are laid out because we have two main exit stairwells in the building, an A, an a stairwell, which is, you know, we designated the E stairwell and the B stairwell, which is designated as the West stairwell. So they pretty much run run true from top to bottom. So I, I don't need, and we have standpipe uh, risers in both stairwells. So, I, you know, but on some of the other stuff, like I, I made sure, because it was, it was my job to, to update the plan so that it accurately show, um, you know, what a fire chief would need to know in a particular building. So I made sure that all of the access stairs, which I don't know what you call them in the UK, but those are, you know, convenience stairs. Access stairs or convenience stairs are used for internal connections between floors. For example, those owned by a single tenant who want to have access within their own space. For, from a firefighting perspective, that's important to know because, like, if I know that I'm going in to, say, fight a fire on 
I'll just say the 10th floor. And I find out that there are access stairs from 8 through 12, meaning that I could get into the 8th floor and walk internally up to the 12th floor. In my mind now, I don't have that compartmentation. I don't have the slab construction. You know, I don't have cement separating floors. I have, I have, you know, basically, you know, a five-story open space that will allow, you know, fire and smoke to travel, uh, you know, from the lower floor to the, the, the upper floor or drop down from the upper floor down to the lower floor. So again, you know, I want to know that going in so that I can, again, strategize uh, and plan properly on how I'm going to fight that particular fire. In terms of accessing information then, Bobby says the app has been really helpful, yet he's pragmatic about how widely the tenants would use it. To like every tenant in a building, you know, would I give it to them? Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm a big proponent, Bernadette, of, of, you know, giving people as much knowledge as possible. Um, so, you know, would I give it to them? Absolutely. You know what? But, uh, you know, the reality of it is, you know, like if I gave it to a thousand tenants of a building, how many of them would have the wherewithal to remember to go to it or use it? You know, um, again, if, if you did do that internally, you would have to provide, you know, training, you know, and the, the tenants would have to be taught like how to use it. The tenants would have to remember that it's there. So, you know, it's, it's more than just, you know, giving people access to an app and then just walking away from it. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot involved in having them work with it, having them use it, having them remember that it's there, uh, you know, even knowing that it's there, how do they use it? You know, like some of the older tenants in a building, you know, they may not have a smartphone. They may not have a, a phone that's capable of opening up an app, you know, up until five years ago, uh, my own personal phone was a flip phone. My kids used to yell at me all the time, you know, get rid of that phone. You know, what are you doing with that phone? You know? From an operational perspective, Bobby points out that a fire chief could get better information about a building and an incident on his route to it from the app, which would complement the traditional radio communication by providing visual information. I've shown it and I've actually um, given the app to like the local battalion, which is the 7th Battalion. Uh, I've, I've allowed them to upload it on their phones. Um, and that gives them the ability while the chief is in, uh, in route from the firehouse to the location, he could, if he wanted to, open up the app on, the pho- on his phone and see a floor plan, you know, like if he heard on the radio that the fire was on the 23rd floor, you know, on an, on an outdoor setback, you know, he could in route, bring that up on his phone and kind of like, again, how much time is he going to have from the, from the firehouse to the, to the scene of the fire? Um, you know, cause it, it could be just a couple of minutes, but in a couple of minutes, he could get information off the app because it's on his phone that allows him to, in his mind's eye, 
get a better picture of what he's hearing on the radio, if that makes any sense. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah it does, because there's a different way of you hear information and you, you can also right. see it, which is a different right. way of absorbing right. the information. So, uh, you know, the, the funny thing, too, and I, I know the, the, the conversation that you and I are having now um, is a direct result of, of a fire scenario. But one thing, too, that we've we've come across here in um, New York City anyway, is that we're and I think, you know, Curtis probably spoke to this when he was talking with you, is that now law enforcement, again, it was originally designed as a as a tool to assist the fire departments across the country. Uh, but now law enforcement in these active shooter uh, scenarios realize that they could use it as well. So uh, I know Curtis already had a couple of uh, drills with that type of scenario out in um, California uh, with some of the SWAT teams. And, you know, so now, again, you know, the, 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 the use of the, the, the Massey plan, whether it be paper or the app, um, is being viewed by both law enforcement and the fire service. The chief has multiple tools in his tool bag. And this is just another one of those tools. Another technology improving information about fire is currently under development by Johnson Controls. As post-Grenfell, the global fire protection industry continues to debate and examine the use of combustible materials in cladding. Zach Magnone, head of innovation at Johnson Controls, decided to ask a different question. How can we better protect buildings with new technology? At Johnson Controls, we're not afraid of technology. I have a really neat job. I'm in charge of innovation. I'm working on all sorts of new technologies, trying to push the envelope with what we can do to better protect buildings with with technology. So we're going to talk to you about a concept uh, around that today. And this one's been geared towards the challenges with combustible building facades. So we took a little bit of a different approach. You know, we don't manufacture materials, we manufacture fire detection and suppression technology. So we thought, could we use this in a way to address some of this challenge? This is a worldwide challenge. We're seeing these fires all over the place. And so we're hoping at least some portion of it um, this concept we're going to talk to you about may be able to address. Zach's new concept was being presented at the Tall Buildings Fire Safety Network Conference at FireX International. And as he began introducing it, he asked the audience to keep in mind that in the event of a fire, time to respond is critical. For example, on New Year's Eve in 2015, an electrical fault caused a fire at the 302 metre tall Address Hotel in Dubai. The time it took for the fire to spread from the four floors originally affected to 20 floors was just 80 seconds. 80 seconds. Less than, less than a minute and a half, that fire went from pretty much where, you know, the region where it started to the top of the building, right? So that's five times taller than the fire service can realistically address from the outside of the building. And that fire started at the very, very base, and it grew to the entire height of that building in a minute and a half. After time, Zach explained that the next key factors are height and accessibility, with firefighters' ability to fight external fires constrained by the limitations of their equipment. So time is critical, height and accessibility are critical. And the last thing is, you know, how do you fight these fires from the inside? It's very difficult. 
What about response time? You know, a really good, you know, think about Dubai. Some of these areas you have, you know, folks that can arrive in five minutes, maybe eight minutes. Then maybe it takes them eight to 15 minutes to get up and operational. Hopefully within 30 minutes or so, you're actually doing something to address the direct threat. But if the fire's on the outside, you know, what are you doing, right? So this is a challenge. So Johnson Controls have been working on a system which can attack a fire rapidly at any height, addressing it quickly before it has time to spread. What we wanted to look at is rapid intervention at any height. Up until today, we've never had a technology available that I'm aware of that allowed you to fight a fire, let's say, over 60 meters on the outside of a building. In addition, we want to try to do it quickly. So when we set out to address this challenge, we thought about a few things we had to address when we looked at technologies. First is speed. You know, we want to detect and deploy something in an incipient fire when it's small, when it's manageable. At the same time, the system seeks to use a small amount of extinguishing agent and be able to reach the fire anywhere on the outside of the building, meaning it must have a wide reach. Uh, What we're talking about here is a completely autonomous fire detection and suppression system. It does a few things. First, it's detection and location. In this case, it's automatically detecting a fire with optical detection and tracking its location in three dimensions. Um, Second, we're then looking to aim and suppress. So once we've detected a fire and activated the system, now we're trying to direct uh, a water spray at the fire. And then once the fire has been addressed, we want to conserve the water supply, hopefully keep it available to fight a fire in the future, so to have it remote reset and go back to sleep. The system could also be manually operated, providing another tool to the fire service, and Zach described how it would work. A few, just to cover the basic components we have, in each individual system we'll have two optical flame detectors. These detectors are capable of identifying the XY location of a fire, but these are optical detectors. They're very insensitive to false alarms and very sensitive to fire signatures, particularly for CO2 and carbon-based fuels. Uh, We have a robotic monitor on extension booms, the booms inside the building. When the fire is detected, it extends and then it'll point the monitor at the fire. We use a standard deluge valve to turn the water on and off. In this case, we want it to be resetting so it can turn off as well as on. And then a PLC and some software that essentially forms the brains, right? So we have the system in standby, fire breaks out, it's detected by the detectors, they provide, two detectors provide XY location to a PLC. We use triangulation to determine its actual location. Monitor points at the fire, sprays at the fire. Once the fire is addressed, the detection signal goes away and then basically goes back into standby. So far, the system's still in conceptual stage, but extensive full-scale proof-of-concept testing has been undertaken. This meant testing the targeting performance. Could the system hit a fire wherever it was, and would it put the fire out? To do this, Johnson Control worked with the Research Institute of Sweden, who developed test method SP5483. We built a very, very large wall in Dubai, but this wall was 35 metres wide, 25 metres tall, and it had a wing off the side so we could put our detectors 50 meters apart. The first type of test we did was around targeting performance. Now the goal was to really validate that, one, we could detect a fairly small incipient fire anywhere within that coverage area. Keep in mind, some these detectors, if we're detecting a fire in the very bottom corner of the wall, the detector far away is something like 70 meters from that fire. Um, It's quite quite far away. So we wanted to validate that we could detect a fairly small fire and that we could target it 
accurately and repeatedly within the coverage area. Um, so we're looking at both automatic detection and response to the fire source, and second, water delivery to the source. Basically, what we wanted to show was that we got water where the fire was, and we could, and, and we sort of visually indicated that through um, sort of what is it suppressed or not. Um, the test variables, the fire location was one of them. We had a number of locations, so you can see the different arrows pointing to a few of them uh, within the coverage area. But the idea there is we wanted to hit a large number of targets in different places. Uh, the pressures we used were five to eight bar. Um, so that corresponds pretty nicely to the kinds of pressure you may have available in a, in a uh, standpipe system or a sprinkler system in a building available already. And I um, say K factor, that's the flow rate we set the, the monitor nozzle for. And we set that so we would hit nominally 800 to 1200 liters a minute across that pressure range. Um, because it's important to us to know every water supply is different, every piping system is different. We need to provide some range and some flexibility. So we tested within those parameters. And then the fuel package we used, we wanted something that would produce a, a fire that was repeatable, uh, was pretty quick, was easy to light on a single panel out, outdoors. It's very difficult to get, like, we even tried some polystyrene panels. You can't light a polystyrene panel if it's not sandwiched in some way or has some incipient heat flux on it. If you just try to light it with a lighter, it just, it just goes out, particularly outside with some wind. Um, so in this case, we used uh, mineral foam panels soaked with some naphtha paint thinner, basically. Um, and in some cases, we did some, to look at 3D fires, we also did some pans with some panels as well. Uh, this turned out to be a very nice repeatable fire, but more importantly, it was a very flat fire. So from the perspective of a, de of a detector, which is pointed back at the building, looking at it at an angle, it's only seeing a sliver. So in this case, we're looking for is a, is a fire that's roughly, that's maybe about a half a square meter, a little, little bigger than half a square meter. We, we thought a good example of the incipient size of a fire we want to be able to detect and respond to. The testing demonstrated that panels that were treated with the suppression system perform much better. We ran this test multiple times. In a few scenarios, we even took pre-burned panels and relit them to do some demonstrations. And... Um, what was incredible was how well the, just a small amount of water, not a direct impact of water, but just making sure you keep those panels reasonably wet, it pre prevented the delamination, kept the material intact, and really helped prevent a lot of the additional flame spread. At the same time, other important findings were around early detection of fire at height, which traditionally has relied on human intervention, so people noticing the fire and alerting the emergency services. Fairly reliable rapid detection location of these small incipient fires is possible, particularly at well over 50 meters. Think about the impact on just having detection at height that's reliable, where you can get an, you know, an indication earlier. I'm not aware of too many auto automatic means of fire detection on the outside of buildings these days. Typically, I think we're relying on somebody to see it and call the fire service, which means it needs to be big enough for them to see. Such systems for faster response to external fire spread could clearly benefit buildings. But what about internal fires? Well, there's always the good old sprinkler system. In August 1874, a Connecticut-based businessman named Henry Palmer Lee filed a patent for a sprinkler head which would be used to protect his piano factory and in the following decade, over 200,000 such sprinklers were introduced to businesses around New England. 
Building on this achievement, another US entrepreneur, Frederick Grinnell, began improving on the Parmalee head, creating the first automated sprinkler heads. His business, the Grinnell Fire Protection Company, is now part of Johnson Controls, who we just heard from. Despite their effectiveness at preventing fire spread and fighting fire, sprinklers have remained more common in businesses and commercial applications. But here in the UK, momentum is building for wider adoption of the technology. Most noticeably, the report into the Lacanal House fire in 2009 called for government to push providers of multiple occupancy housing to retrofit sprinkler systems. But nothing happened. In June 2017, Grenfell Tower burned down, killing 72 people, and that had no sprinklers either. We can hear more about this fire in the first episode in our series of fire safety podcasts. But after this disaster, the London Assembly produced a report which called for sprinklers to be mandated in all buildings over 18 metres tall. The report even goes as far as calling for the Mayor to establish a £50 million sprinkler retrofit fund for older buildings. From an engineering perspective, the use of sprinklers comes back to compliance with building regulations. In some cases they're required, and in some cases they're not. The rules vary depending on the type of building and its use, as well as which part of the UK that you're in. I asked Tom Roche of the Business Sprinkler Alliance to explain, and we started with the basics, describing sprinkler heads today. So basically it's a standard sprinkler head. So what you have is a deflector that people would look at. It looks like an umbrella. And then you have a bowl, which is glass, which has a liquid inside it. Alcohol-based. It's an alcohol-based liquid. Basically, that's the sensible part because actually, when it, that's what heats up and when that sort of expands, it breaks that glass bulb and that's what lets the water out. There are no wires, it's not smoke related, it's all down to that thermal element. So if that doesn't break, the plug doesn't come out, nor does the water. It's as simple as that. Um, and that's exactly what the original designs of sprinklers looked like. They might have used wax and other things to plug a hole, yeah. and when the wax melt, the plug came out and out came the water yeah. from pipes. We've just become more sophisticated in how we deploy it. And, and if you like, there, there's lots of different things to sort of talk about about a sprinkler, but the basic thing is it's a hole in a, in a, in a, in a sort of a, a frame, the hole is plugged, and a glass bulb stops that plug coming out and a deflector to throw the water. And then you have more advanced designs which are bigger, and they're, they're noticeable because they have bigger orifice, they have a bigger hole, and they have a more sensitive thermal element. So would that cover a wider area? It would cover a similar area, but what it delivers is a lot more water in a lot more force. So this is a spray sprinkler, and this is what we call a suppression sprinkler, storage sprinkler. As Tom explains, the technology is tried and tested, so why are we only just appreciating the benefits of these simple but effective tools? The regulations say that fire suppression systems can be used as part of you know, defending compartments. When you look at the guidance to that regulation, it sort of becomes a little bit grey. So depending on how high you build a building or how big a building is, there could be a requirement in the guidance to put sprinklers into a building. I think what most people find a surprise is the fact that there is no requirement in the UK or in England for sprinklers in a hotel or high-rise student accommodation. There's none at all. If I build a block of flats over 30 metres high, then yes, there is. If I build a factory and it's single storey, I can build it as big as I like without any requirement for sprinklers. If I build a warehouse, as long as it's not above 18 metres high, 
if I keep it below 20,000 square meters, it doesn't What's the rationale? Now the sound quality isn't great here, but I asked Tom why there was such a disparity. Uh, basically, a, a lot of this is driven by the fact that our regulations are centered around keeping people safe. It's about life safety. So success in our regulations could be termed if a building burns to the ground just after the last person got out, it's a success. It's a success. Okay, so it's not about the building surviving and you being able to use it again tomorrow. It's about you being able to safely get out, firefighters to get in and get out, and not disturbing the people around you. That's really where our regulations are centred. Building regulations do call for sprinklers to be fitted in new tall buildings over 30 metres high. But regulations alone are not enough, Tom says. So if you want to make your building resilient to fire, following the regulations is not enough because what that will lead to is it will help everybody get out, but it won't make sure that your business is there tomorrow. So you have to think about, well, what's important to you? What parts of your process are really important? What parts of your business are really important? How will they be affected by fire? And then think about, well, what do I need to do about that? Is that I need better detection to alert myself to a fire because we could probably deal with it? Or do I need sprinklers? Do I need to separate processes so that actually, if I have a fire, only part of my process is damaged and not all of it? So I think business owners need to ask more questions. And I think that's the key part, that regulations, and, and people wouldn't be alone. If, As an organization, we did a, a survey of small and medium enterprises, and it was something like 80% of people thought that if they followed the regulations, that it would adequately protect their promises and make them resilient to fire. That's not at all what the regulations do. So you've got to ask more questions and also be prepared to act. There's one thing to sort of say, well, I'm worried about fire. Then somebody comes along and says, well, the medicine is sprinklers. It's going to cost money. And then sort of go, ah, I don't like the medicine. You've got to think about this and say, well, if this is important to you, is that the right solution? Or is there another route I can take? So people have to think very clearly about what actions they're going to take. As we'd expect, Tom argues that in terms of cost, not only are sprinklers low in comparison to the cost of fire damage, but they can actually reduce the need for other fire safety measures, bringing down overall cost. I was looking at an example this morning where we were talking about an office block, where people are telling me that you know putting sprinklers into an office block was going to be incredibly expensive to do. Um, and it wasn't really going to be beneficial for the building. We went through the process of sort of talking it through and actually worked out that sprinklers would probably save money on the build cost of this building. The build with sprinklers was going to be less than the build without sprinklers. And why was that? It's because you could make some other sort of adjustments to the fire safety strategy of the building so you could reduce certain factors because you get such an increase in fire safety from putting sprinklers in yeah, the building. It's a systemic approach, isn't it? Yeah. If, if you, anybody listens to what Hackett has said and others have said, we can't just rely on one layer of safety. We've got to look at layers. So, And everybody would say the same thing, which is sprinklers are a very, very effective layer of safety. So if you put that layer in, then some of the other layers that you put with it, do they need to be to the same level? Well, you can trade some of those things and sort of look at for a balance that says, okay, maybe I don't need as much fire resistance because I have sprinklers. Maybe I can get more travel distance in a building because if I have sprinklers that are controlling a fire, people have got more time to get out. Tom says there are a couple of major issues holding back the use of sprinklers, and one of them is James Bond. People have for too long watched Hollywood 
and seen sprinklers go off all over the place. And people die hard, die hard the die hard, the equalizer film, yeah, there's there's hundreds of them. The, one of the latest Bond films has a he presses a button and all of a sudden all the sprinklers go off in an airport terminal. It's all rubbish. It it doesn't work like that. But for people thinking about it, they start to think, ooh, one goes off, all go off. What about the water damage? And you get these bizarre situations where people fear water damage more than they do the damage from fire. I can only tell you my experience over time is the damage from fire is huge in comparison to the water damage from sprinklers. The other major issue, he says, is competence. We've got to up our competency, is our basic, basic issue. There's a lot of people who work in the fire sector who need to up their competency, and also within the civil construction sector who need to under, up their competency in terms of how they understand fire, how they understand fire safety, so that they can apply it properly. So whether they're specifying materials, specifying fire protection, they're looking at different designs, they can sit there and understand, well, what does this mean for the people who are in the building, those people who want to use the building, people who run a business in the building, what does it mean for them? So I think there's a key thing which is upping our competency and understanding of some of these issues because I think at the moment we're in this grey zone where we, we, we assume there's a lot of clever people out there, but actually, they're few, too few. Looking ahead, Tom says smart sprinklers are coming with an array of sensors that can instruct which sprinklers to deploy where. You know, the future, what we'll probably look at is how do we, how do we sort of turn these things on and off in different ways. You can imagine a future where we perhaps take a video picture of the fire area. We mix that video signal with a smart computer that works out, well, that's actually where the fire is. And then we link that to signals to sprinkler devices, perhaps at the ceiling, maybe in the floor, that say we need to put water just there then we'll sort of use that to control sprinklers of the future. So I can see more smart systems in the future. Is that research being done? Yes. There's a thing called a smart sprinkler. And, you know, people have been looking at this thing as how do we make, how do we deliver enough water or just enough water at the right time to put the fire out? Because one of the other things that's coming in the future is water will be more scarce. These may be a way off. But more widespread adoption of sprinklers is expected, with the number of voices calling for them in public buildings growing. Since I interviewed Tom in June, the London Fire Brigade has called for sprinklers to be installed in all new London schools, and any that are refurbished to have them retrofitted. This is something that already happens in Scotland. Beyond sprinklers, fire detection is another issue where significant investment and progress has been made. We heard in our first podcast that detectors have become more sophisticated, yet a lack of awareness among designers means that old-fashioned devices are still being specified, perpetuating a lack of confidence due to the high rate of false alarms and vandalism. Ian Moore is the president of the Fire Industry Association, which undertook research into defining false alarms with the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service. After spending three months out on response with the fire service to define exactly why false alarms were happening, the study made 35 recommendations which are being worked through. But these findings highlighted some simple steps that can make fire detectors more successful, including paying closer attention to the positioning of detectors, away from emergency doors for example, and placing covers over them to prevent children from pushing them. Moore pointed to a new detector from Apollo called the Soteria Dimension, 
which can sit flush to the wall or ceiling and incorporates optical detectors for intelligent sensing of transient or foreign objects. Now this is actually a flush detector. So the vandal side of things improves. So for prisons and holding cells, etc., etc., they're using these more and more because you can't pull them off the ceiling. Now, this was previously not available only because there is a, a thermal barrier on the ceiling that you need to have 25 millimeters. EN54 stipulates this. That's why you never see flush detectors. You think the architects and they walk in a buildings must hate these things on the ceiling of their beautiful ornate ceiling, but you have no choice. Moore also discussed digital transformation and pointed to new products coming to market with embedded data, fire doors hosting QR codes, for example. Some of the other areas we've been looking at, we work with uh, fire doors and technology and uh, modern IT um, embedded into girder doors. This is what these are. Just one of the examples is a uh, QR code, and that will hold the whole history of the door. So if you're wondering about the installation, the timings, the ratings, everything else, this is heading towards the BIM type things where we have all information available at source, very useful. Uh, and a lot of work we've been doing the FIA actually is developing um, companies that are looking at logging fire safety logs. For instance, in a panel you normally have one you hand write in, so every time you test every week your fire alarm you're meant to write it in. If you do 10% of your detectors every quarter or whatever the standards are at the moment, you write it in. Uh, we've found a lot that it's surprising after an incident or just before an audit, the same handwriting and still wet ink is uh, 10 in a row, they suddenly start filling them out. So really to sort of get past that, we really need to move forward and be a little bit more electronic and start putting this off-site. These developments also fit in with a golden thread of information theme we discussed at the start of the programme. The growing use of building information modelling requires that such data about all building components is entered into a digital database from the outset. Handing this over to the building owner, as suggested in the Hackett Review, provides more transparency about the fire safety of the structure. Across the board, then, new technologies are being developed, building on the increasing availability of data and the digital world that we all inhabit. Yet incentivizing building owners to move forward requires a mix of regulation, incentivization, and more awareness of the potential and limitations of fire safety measures. Challenging innovation, too, is the complex approvals process which is necessary for important new technologies. So every time you come up with a great idea for fire detection or alarm or extinguishing systems, the path is very, very long and very, very expensive. And a lot of people hang back from coming up for new innovation, uh, new product lines and improving product lines because of the cost it is to those people. So the bigger companies will tend to take the lead and the smaller guys will be waving in the background hoping that their piece of equipment they spent half of their profits on actually makes it. So it does stifle innovation, but it's something we need to do. But regardless of how it happens, there's agreement across the board that when it comes to fire safety in tall buildings, change is needed, and fast. As we've seen in the third and fourth episodes of our podcast, there are engineers doing incredible work to bring new strategies, whether that's for utilising lifts for evacuation or providing localised fire detection and suppression. But what's really needed is more pressure on developers to use these. Government has shown its unwillingness to prescribe measures to improve safety and is expected to continue to support the performance-based system, meaning that the competence of those working in that system, along with the guidance provided by government, need to be improved quickly. Beyond regulation, the introduction of a fire and life safety rating system, as we discussed in episode 2, 
could drive better behaviours for tall buildings and address historic building stock, yet this remains nothing more than a good idea for now. So we remain in a strange status quo where everyone knows what the problems are and what the solutions could be, yet apart from a handful of landmark major projects, there are still developers seeking to create tall buildings which upon interrogation would demonstrate poor fire safety performance, even if they do meet the minimum requirements as agreed by the inspectors that they pay for. This has to stop, and the only way that it will is if the government shows leadership on restructuring the building's approval system, improving and clarifying guidance, such as approved document B, and strengthening the requirements of duty holders to do more on fire safety. is a production of Reby Media, produced and hosted by me, Bernadette Ballantyne. With special thanks to FireX International, the Tall Buildings Fire Safety Network, the Fire Industry Association, Johnson Controls, Massey Emergency Management and 10 Hudson Yards. Mixing and editing by John Young. Additional story development by Rian Owen. The theme tune is by JM Sounds, with additional music from Pond5. Evacuation Director is Rory Harris and we'll be back in three weeks with more. If you like this podcast, please leave us a comment or review on your podcast app, which really helps others to hear about us or simply tell a friend to have a listen. Engineering Matters can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Podcast Addict, Blueberry or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Engineer Matters or find us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Find out more about us online at rebe.media.